we get out there and it's a couple of days prior to Thanksgiving and I'm like, I've been seeing this cow out here in the middle of the field that's chained up, not moving anywhere and just eating, eating around. I was like, hey, sir, can we just, you know, go find the owner, pay him, you know, and get the cow and then we could have a really good Thanksgiving. And so he goes, no. I said, well, what if I just go over there and sneak over, get it, and then I show up with beef? <laughs> Is that okay? And he goes, no. And then uh, a gunny, rolled buddy of mine, he goes, hey. I, um, and he's South African. So he's like, John, I've got, a, I've got an idea. And I was like, oh, what? He goes, I hit a house over here, and it's got turkeys. And I'm like, okay, you're from South Africa. <laughs> Um, is it gobble gobble turkeys or is it a chicken? And he goes, it's a gobble gobble. I know a damn turkey. I've lived in America forever. And I was like, okay, fine. So I go around the guys. We grab up some money. We, uh, I take five guys and an interpreter with me with, you know, food and water and candy for the kids. If he's got kids and stuff. And, um, I think, uh, doc had a soccer ball. And he put the soccer ball uh, in his pack, and we go walking around. Um, the base gets hit. We're out in the middle of nowhere. The choppers are flying around, and they're like, "Oh, do you have your do you have your glit tape? And you do you got your beacon on?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I got my beacon on." Well, they can't see you, and I'm like, "Well, freaking batteries, Murphy." <laughs> he goes, "You're well, supposed to have backups," and I'm like, "I have my backups. Hold on, you know." And so we finally get to the house. I see lambs and I was like, Oh, now that would be a great Thanksgiving dinner for the guys. And then I see the turkeys. They, they're Iraqi turkeys. So they were totally Turkey ish. <laughs> and, uh, then he had chickens and the guy wouldn't negotiate for the lambs. So we got, you know, every, every one of my guys had two chickens in their right hand and a turkey in their left. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. Joining me for episode 109 is John Jones. John grew up in Oklahoma, and as a kid, he would watch the jets at Vance Air Force Base fly overhead. And from a young age, he knew he wanted to join the military. So in 1994, he enlisted in the Marines through the delayed entry program. His first choice was the Army, but that didn't go so well. So after his high school graduation in 1995, he was off to boot camp. And John was front sight focused on a career in the Marine Corps. Unfortunately, while he was deployed in Iraq in 2003, John and an IED had an up-close conversation. And though John survived the encounter, he had to medically retire in 2007 at the rank of Staff Sergeant. He's since been featured in the documentary Alive Day Memories with the actor James Gandolfini. Today, John operates in the nonprofit world, advocating for veterans' affordable housing as the executive director of VBC Giving Foundation. If you aren't already, please follow the podcast on the platform you're listening to this. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. Here's episode 109. Let's go backwards before we go forwards. Okay. Tell me about where you grew up. So I grew up in Enid, Oklahoma, a little bitty small farm town up by the uh, panhandle of Oklahoma. So if you grab a hold of the panhandle like a frying pan and you put your finger right there, that's... That's pretty much the easiest way of where I can tell people <laughs> where I came from. Uh, 
Is Enid a, or was Enid a small town? Uh, it's, it, it was back then, uh, but now it's, um, it's grown up quite a lot over the past, you know, 46 years. What was family life like? Big families, brothers, sisters? No, it was a super small family. I had my mom and my brother and my grandparents. That's it. I uh, lost my grandparents whenever I was, you know, younger, 16, and my brother is 14 years older than me, so he was kind of like my dad. Wow. Right? My father figure. Um, he was in construction. My mom was in, um, I guess you could say she was, she was a jack of all trades, master of none, <laughs> right? So she was in the medical field, and then she went into um, probation and parole, and then she went in to be a probation or parole officer, and then do child protective services. So basically my childhood was don't do anything wrong. If you go to jail, you're staying there. Right. Uh, so, and, and, and back in the days when parents actually meant it, <laughs> well, we, you know, funny stories, whatever we, we moved cause my mom went to child protective services down in Oklahoma city and we moved to Edmond and, you know, really cool. Well, a little funny story is I was a typical teenager, right? Mom said, Oh, I'm leaving to go to Enid to work on a grandparents' house. I'm like, oh, sweet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out. So I said, oh, I'm going to spend the night over at my friend Aaron's. And then we went from Aaron's house to another house. And then we went to another house in Oklahoma City. I picked up beer because my... How old are you at this point? I was 17, 16, 17, somewhere around there. Um, my driver's license had 72. So it was legal to buy alcohol. So I got the beer, had really long hair, shaved my head, just like you. Came back the next day. Mom was home. She was like, where have you been all night? Why do you smell like booze? Why do you, you know, where's your hair? And then I took off my beanie and she goes, where's your hair? And then, so she took me to juvenile hall. What prompted you to shave your head? I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) No idea. So every great decision, every great decision in one night. And then I had three days in juvenile hall. She basically (laughs) took me to juvenile hall. She had the in, right? (laughs) Go. He he needs to be here for three days. Well, we can't really do that. Well, I'll I'll write the report. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So that was my mom in in a nutshell. As a young boy, active in sports and. Yeah. I mean, I played baseball i played football i did golf my brother got me into golf um you know so pretty active in sports and things of that nature and then whenever i got into high school it was you know fast cars girls and sports and then alcohol. i didn't know what i was in alcohol <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah you know all the all the great choices that a guy makes um and i ended up you know just you know Knowing that I was not going to go to college at a young age because one, I hated school, didn't like it. Um, it was more, I hadn't grown up yet. And finally, my junior year, I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do. And so then, but I knew I wanted to join the military. I've always wanted to join the military. I mean, whenever I was a little kid, I would always see the, um, the, flight trainers for the air force and Enid, Oklahoma going back and forth every day. And it'd go right over my house every day. They would go fast. They'd go slow. They'd go, you know, everything. And I was like, yeah, I really want to join the military. So whenever was your I, mom supportive of that as, 
Did she, she didn't know. Okay. So you never voiced that interest? Not really. Um, so I went in to the recruiter's office and I was like, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to join the army because my grandparents served in the army. My cousin served in the army. My uncle served in the army. So everybody, you know, most male figures. Hold that just a little bit closer. Around. There you go. Most of my family was in the military. So my brother didn't join. He wanted to, you know, he was on the opposite side of, you know, wanted to go into business. He was a construction worker and everything. And I knew I didn't want to do that because I worked for him. No, thanks. I'm going to edit this out there. I'm getting like, are you hearing you that feedback in your ear when you're talking? Which one? This scuff? Yeah. Were, uh, was, that it, was, was it brush? Oh, okay. Close. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. So, you know, I didn't know, I, I knew I didn't want to follow my brother's footsteps in construction and everything because I worked for him and when, growing up and I knew that I didn't want to do that. So from your brother's perspective though, was he trying to lure you into the construction industry or working with him? He just wanted me to stay out of trouble. I think, you know, being the father figure, you know, teaching me, you know, work ethic and things of that nature. That's, that was his job. He took that over and it was really, really impactful for me on that side of the house to have him do that. So going backwards just a little bit though, did you know your dad? No, I didn't know my dad. Mom and dad divorced. Like when mom you were- and dad divorced at this time. I didn't know my father long time. Um, and, you know, there was turmoil whenever I was younger with the, with my parents and everything. So I didn't, didn't see my dad, didn't hear from him, didn't do anything. And then, so that was the only person I had was my brother and my grandfather. Well, my grandfather died at, at, uh, 16. So, you know, I didn't have those formative years of 16 to 18 of, you know, becoming a man and doing things, but I, you know, had my brother there to help me. Um, so you know, going to 17, didn't know what I was going to do, was getting in trouble. It's not <laughs> going down the right, right wrath of my mother of five foot five of, you know, kicking my butt all the time. And I said, I'm going to join. So I went to the army, said, Hey, this is what I want to do. And they said, okay, great. Let's go down to MEPS, take the ASVAB, do the physical, everything. Past physical, past the ASVAB with flying colors, not a problem. I go to take the color vision test, failed miserably. So come to find partial out, color blindness or full color blindness. When I, well, whenever they put that book, the dots and you couldn't dot, see the numbers. I saw the first number. I think it was twenty-seven, and then everything after that, I was like, I have no clue. Red, green, or blue, yellow? It's red, red, green, blue. No, are you? You're red, all three. Red, green, blue, colorblind. Oh wow. So it's, you know, it's good times. Um, but it didn't disqualify you from joining from the army. It did. So whenever I passed everything, got everything ready to go. And then I go sat down with the little computer guy on this little old school dot computer, DOS computer system. And he goes, uh, son, you can't even change bedpans in the army because you're colorblind. Thanks. Here you go. Do you color code the bedpans? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay. A little side note. So same thing happened to me when I went into law enforcement. Go to take my, my medical test, go through everything. They hand me the dots and I'm like, yeah, I can see a couple of them. And initially it was, you can't do you it. You can't do it. And I was fortunate that because I'd already been working for the organization as a cadet and stuff like that, they had a vested interest in me. 
And so the hiring lieutenant at the time calls up to the state of California and is like, hey, are there any other options? And I can't remember the name of the test, but there's a, there's a more specialized colorblindness test. And I call it the bottle cap test because basically there's about 14 caps that have colors in them. Mm -hmm. The first one is fixed. And basically they say, okay, there's that one. Put the one that's the most next to that color and then keep going down the order. And I I got that one perfect. So that one allowed to test for partial colorblindness. Right. Well, I don't know. That's all the military did. Army said no. (laughs) Army said no. So my recruiter didn't talk to me the whole time. Going back home to Edmund, <laughs> didn't talk to me. Blames you for being colorblind. Like, blames me for not hitting his quota. Right, right. And you know he gets out of the car, and I'm like, "Are you mad at me?" And he goes, <laughs> "Yeah. Why didn't you tell me you were colorblind? You wasted a whole day of of my time." And I was like, "Shit, I'm sorry." You know, I was crushed. I was like, well, "Oh, well, now what am I gonna do?" And so then I'm looking at you know the other posters and you know because they're all in one and uh i looked at the air force and i was like that is an <laughs> ugly uniform not gonna do that then you know bell bottoms and an upside down dog dish for the navy not gonna do that and i saw the marine corps one and i was like hmm, maybe i should walk in so i walked in and i was not in a good mood i guess you could say i was like i just want to know one thing can I be colorblind, but I passed everything and, and joined the Marine Corps. And the guy, you know, Stavs Arn Johnson at the time, he looks at me and he goes, I need a sir out of your mouth. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is totally different than the army. All right. What am I getting myself into? And I was like, okay, sir, can I be colorblind and join the Marine Corps? And he goes, yeah, we have waivers. And he goes, well, what, what's going on? I said, well, I just got back from maps from the army. The army guy said, thanks for wasting my time. I couldn't join the army because I'm colorblind. He goes, we got waivers. <laughs> Walks over, pick up, picks up the book, yells at the guy, brings it back over. And he goes, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, what can I do? He goes, anything you want? Minus really specific color stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, you're not going to work on jets. Okay, you're not going to work on helicopters. Attach the red wire. You know, we're not going to do that. I said, okay, well, I want to be outside, blow stuff up. Uh, let's go into what security forces or, you know, whatever. And he goes, got the perfect job. You want to be a machine gunner. You want to carry a machine gun and blow stuff up with a machine gun. I'm like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Didn't know I could get any other job in the Marine Corps, but that's what he had a slot for. Yeah, and exactly. I was like, okay, fine. Recruiters. Done. Recruiters. <laughs> Gotta love them. So that went home, told my mom. She started to cry. I was going to say, how'd that go over? <laughs> went over like a fart in the wind. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty much how it happened. And she goes, well, no, you're not going. I said, well, I already signed the paperwork. You can't. You're 17. I was like, no, I, I can. I can. I can join. I signed. Well, because I wasn't graduating. Oh. And my birthday wasn't there. So I signed the preliminary. Got it. You know, and then she calls the staff sergeant and he's like, well, ma'am, I mean, he's, he's a man. He can make his own choices at this point. She did not like that at all. Um, and you know, that's where that journey just, just began, uh, for me. 
And what year was this? That was 1994 and then 95 whenever I graduated. So June graduated off to boot camp when? Uh, May graduated because Oklahoma is different. Um, Graduated in May, went off in July. And going into at that point in time, were you thinking long-term, hey, I'm going to make a career out of this? Or was I had it- no idea what I was going to do. First enlistment. First enlistment. Let's, let's just see, go. Let's see how it goes. Um, you know, going into boot camp was a culture shock because, you know, the only states that I went to when growing up was Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, Texas. You know, nothing really... You know, California, total culture shock. <laughs> you know, you get off the plane and you're like, I don't know where I'm going, what I'm doing. And then you got some guy yelling at you, get on the, get on the bus, get off the bus, get on the yellow footprints. And, you know, that's where it started was on those yellow footprints in MCRD San Diego. I've talked to different guests and some who from the West Coast, old enough, ended up going to Paris Island. Did they give you, was it an option or were you? San Diego is where you were going. San Diego is where I was going. That was it. I couldn't go to Paris Island, which, you know, they always say that, you know, sand fleas are on that side and surfing's on that side. Well, I went to surf, right? I guess you could say. Um, And that was, you know, it it was that, that was the beginning and didn't really know what I was getting into, but I loved the structure. I was needing it really bad whenever I was a kid. Um, You know, learning that, something's bigger than yourself was always a big piece. And that's where, you know, we just, I loved it. What'd your brother say about you joining the Marine Corps? Awesome. Get out of Oklahoma. So he was all for it. Yeah. Did mom ever come around? Oh yeah. Mom came around. I mean, as soon as boot camp happened, I, I think I went into boot camp at five ten, and I came out six, four. And mom goes, what are they feeding you? You know? And I was like, I don't know, <laughs> you know? And, um, it was just a, it was a great experience and mom came around and she became really, really proud and everything. And I mean, we weren't at war. We weren't at anything. It was total peacetime service at that point. Um, I went, came home, had a girlfriend, you know, I was like, well, you know, what do you do in the South? You get married young. Uh, will you marry me? She was still in high school. And she's like, yeah. And then the parents were like, well, you got a good job. You got medical insurance and you're going to get paid. Okay. And then that's where that started. Out of boot camp, where'd you get stationed? Uh, 29 Palms, California. Oh, you saw the best part of Southern <laughs> California. The best of California. They keep that one secret during the recruiting process. They kept all of that secret. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it, you know, whatever you're in school of infantry and they're going down the road of, you know, who's all going where it was. Oh, Camp Lejeune, Camp Lejeune, Camp Lejeune, Camp Lejeune, you know, Camp Pendleton, Camp Pendleton, Camp Pendleton, Camp Pendleton, Hawaii, Hawaii, Hawaii. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to get Hawaii. This is going to be amazing. 29 Palms. And I'm like, what is 29 <laughs> Palms? And the instructor goes, it's the desert. Good luck. And then, I, you know, and I'm a machine gunner and I'm like, okay, sand doesn't sound good carrying a 50 cal or a Mark 19. Ooh, I'm going to be on trucks great. Yeah. Let's, you know, throw it on the back of the Humvee and I don't have to hike that thing around. Let's do this. No, I didn't even get anything in weapons company. And so we 
And what's funny is they take you at night. They well, bush you, and then they take you at night. You have no idea. All you know is it's 120 degrees at, at night. <laughs> and you're like, God, where am I? And then you get there and, you know, the next morning you wake up and you're like, did they land me on the moon? <laughs> is this Mars or what is this? It's like, okay, great. And then you're sweeping out your barracks room and there's sand all over the place. And you're like, how, how am I ever going to pass inspection with all this sand? Are you kidding me? You know? And, um, then they put me in a, in a line platoon, a line company and went to weapons, weapons platoon and, you know, I get there and all of my seniors were Gulf War guys. And, um, you know, it was, it was pretty, you know, unique to have them. And, you know, coming from school, they were just about to get transitioned from the M60 into the M240 Golf, which was a, you know, 7.62 machine gun that, so basically all of the new boots had to teach the seniors <laughs> on the new weapon system once we got them. And then we had to learn the 60 before, and I was like, oh, this is weird. I'm teaching a corporal and a sergeant the new weapon system. And then they're drilling me <laughs> on why don't you know everything? And I'm so stressed out, right? And then you're getting thrashed every five seconds, right? And um, <laughs> it, was, it was the best time of my life. I loved it. Um, you know, you went to Okinawa, Japan. You did your your stuff. I hated the sand. I couldn't stand it, but you know, running in that, not fun. Then you have to run in somebody else's footprints and you better hope that they're at the same height as you. Now I had a little Delgado. He was about five foot eight <laughs> and he could run like speedy Gonzalez. And I was like, ah, this is going to kill me, <laughs> you know, and I'm taking these little short steps and I was like, can we stretch it out a little bit? Um, yeah, that was, that was a fun time. So once you're into it, hook, line, sinker, that you're like, you're loving it. This is, this is what I want to do. Does it, and we're going to get to your injury, but does it come to a point where you're thinking long-term? You know what? My first enlistment, it was going by so fast. I was going to school. Uh, I transferred from two, seven to one, seven within my first four years to a new unit because I was trying to do the smooth boot thing and get away from going to another, um, tour in Okinawa. Now that didn't work out well. I had to do two more, which was great. Um, um, so I went cross stacked over to one seven suicide, Charlie and, uh, you know, in weapons and went from machine guns to uh, assault and with the rockets and explosives and then went over to mortars and things of that nature. And, um, I was about to re-enlist or they, uh, my, my time was about up. I didn't even realize it. I'm at school and I get a call like, Hey, you're supposed to check out in three days. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm at school. Like he goes, well, go to the career jammer or a career planner and go find if you get a spot. I said, okay, I go find out. I got a spot. Signed my reenlistment papers right there. I, I was like, I was so into it and I was going to school and I needed to pass this course and everything to um, get the MOS of an assaultment. And, and then, you know, as it kept going, I was like, oh, geez, I need to reenlist. So reenlisted, got promoted, you know, two days later. And then it was 
now it's now it's done. Now I'm now I'm on my second term, and I learned from. Were they both four year enlistments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I learned from a my company gunny um, sergeant major Weiser. Um, we called him the Gator, so he kind of looks like you, but much older and much stern. <laughs> you know, really, really stern. And his eyebrows would walk into the room before he would walk into the room. Yeah, I keep uh, mine trimmed. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't. He didn't care. Um, and you know, he was guiding me. Um, in you know, making me read books every single my first four years of, you know, here's a here's a tactical book. You know, here's a really good book on on the Vietnam War. Here's a really good book on this. And I didn't really understand it, what he was doing, but he was teaching me all these different tactic pieces. And, um, you know, I was looking at where I was going to go from a, um, my job of what I wanted to do. Well, I wanted to be, by the time I hit my sixth year, I really wanted to be a warrant officer. I wanted to be a gunner. I wanted to have that bursting bomb. I wanted to be the man it um in the battalion of you know you're the tactical genius you are what everybody asks you know advice from and i had you know was fortunate my my very younger years i had some of the best gunners in the marine corps they were all stationed 29 palms and got to admit yes it might have been a really really terrible place to live but it was the best place for training it was the best across the board um and you could shoot anything you could blow anything up you could do whatever you wanted to the camp pendleton marines didn't have that the you know no but everybody came to 29 palms for like combined arm exercises and cacs is what we called it and everybody you still see the convoys even today oh, rolling yeah. up and down the 15 heading up there oh yeah i mean and, and it's and it's uh you know that's the that's the a game you're the A team if you're in 29 Palms. Everybody else is like B and C team. Um, so I didn't really realize what he was doing until after my, you know, sixth, seventh year of, you know, being in the Marine Corps. And I was like, this is what I really want to do. And I was stationed in Bahrain at the time. Uh, and this, you know, this time frame is now, you know, 2002, 2001. Prior to that, you know, you're doing... I was at security forces doing teaching cadres, uh, the Navy, how to protect themselves because the Marine Corps decided we're getting away from protecting the Navy. So now we had to have these trainers teach the Navy how to protect themselves and their bases and their boats and everything, um, as well as, you know, physical security and anti-terrorism for the Marine Corps and um, non-lethal weapons instructor trainer and a CQB instructor trainer. So you were teaching people how to become instructors and taking them back to their units so they could teach. It was really, you know, that was just more things in my wheelhouse of becoming tactically and more proficient of doing things, you know, base security. How do you set up a security system? How do you set up your, you know, your units and, you know, all the way across the board. And whenever I was in Bahrain, you know, we did the, you know, setting up of all of the Patriot missiles again on Bahrain and Shikiza. And then, you know, making sure that that staging point was good to go and doing all of the hectic time frame right before, you know, we kicked off the Gulf War and, uh, or well, right before we kicked off OIF and, 
you know, that was, you know, really, really important to learn and to, you know, be a part of. And then, um, you know, maintaining the security of the base and, you know, doing, you, you know, you, you really are a master of every trade that you have, but you're a jack of everything else in between inside of that. So it was really, it was a fun, exciting time, but it was also kind of a, a scarier time of, you know, trying to figure that out of, okay, now I'm going to go to war. Now at this time, you know, I'm divorced and I have two kids at home. Um, and okay, how's this going to work? How's this going to look? And, you know, moving forward, you know, throughout that was just a, it was exciting, but it was scary, but it was also exhilarating time frame. And now what's going through my head with that is, so you, you mentioned when you went in, you were being trained and taught by Gulf War veterans. Mm -hmm. Then there was a period of peace-ish. Yep. And then obviously 9-11 happens and, and everything, the hornet's nets gets kicked loose. Yeah. But now you're a parent. Mm -hmm. you've, you've been going 100 miles an hour. You're like, I want to get every training under the book. I want to become a warrant. Is there a mind shift, mindset shift at all of, well, shit, now I've got kids I've got to worry about. No, I was still on that. This is what I'm doing. This Because, you know, growing up, you see that, you know, the sacrifices that everybody else made, not for their own dreams and everything. And then I wasn't going to have that happen. I was not going to not live my dream of what I wanted to do. Was I selfish? Yeah. I mean, but I wasn't going to let my dreams be dictated or taken away or, you know, in, in that area. And that's where, you know, some military members have that, that mindset, right? And it took me a long time to get out of that mindset even after my injury and everything. So it was, my priority shifted as soon as I got hurt. But prior to that, yeah, 2000 was actually the kickoff of everything to go crazy in the world, right? Because we had the USS Cole that, that was blown up in Yemen. You know, that was the real culmination of everything started. And then 2001 was just the, you know, the peak of the, of the iceberg. I Putting guess the icing say. on the cake, but yeah. you guys had been eating the cake for over a we've year been, already. We've been doing that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a totally different time frame from 2000. You really grow up from 2000 on your priorities. Definitely, you know, are mission focused and, you know, really going into, into that mindset of this is what I got to do uh, type of mindset. So I'd like to talk about your injury. Walk me through it. When did it happen? So it happened on uh, our, my second tour over um, and to the Middle East. And it was on the last, let's say, 60 days of my deployment. Um, Still in your second enlistment? I was getting ready to go into my no, I was on my third enlistment okay. point. Um, we ended up getting, um, I w well, let me go back because you know the curse of 29 Palms? Have you ever heard of that? In I've actually from, never heard. It's a curse. I mean, I've so, heard it cursed. Yeah, it's <laughs> 29 <laughs> Palms. Exactly. Well, the curse of 29 Palms. So that was my first duty station. I go to Chesapeake, Virginia for my second duty station. Um, and then I go to Bahrain, you know in the desert. Um, and then 
I go for my another, enli- you know, on my third enlistment, I'm finishing up there. We've already kicked off the war. The invasion's already gone uh, on, you know, some of the guys are coming home from their uh, deployment and the monitor goes, okay, you're going to reenlist. I'm like, yep, here's my reenlistment package. I gave him my list of where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to the East coast, get into the boats. Um, and he goes, no, you've got too much time in the desert and we're at war in the desert. So you're going back to the desert. I'm like, you mean I'm going back to 29 palms? I just left 29 palms to come to this desert to, you know, do this. And he goes, yeah, you've got so much experience in the desert. It's either this or you get out and say goodbye. I said, okay, I'll go back to to 29 palms. Went back to one seven, went back to suicide. Charlie, my old company gunny was now my Sergeant major. My old Lieutenant was now my captain. So it was really like coming home. It, It was like, this is awesome. Um, you know, we did our work up, we did everything, um, you know, for five or six months, uh, in, in 29 palms. And then we were ready to roll. We're ready to get out of there. Um, you know, tell the kids, Hey, I'll be in touch as much as I can. You know, they're living in Oklahoma with their mom. And I was, I was, you know, still doing my thing in the service. And, um, I said, don't worry. Dad'll be home. I'll see you whenever I get home and I'll keep in touch with you. So don't worry. So go to Iraq. Uh, third day in, you know, we've already got um, casualties and, and everything from other companies, but that were really tight knitted with us because we moved away from a normal, typical line platoon to integrating people in with us. So we had cat with us that was integrated. We had, our weapons platoon, instead of being standalone, they were integrated in the platoon. Um, you know, we, I had 75 guys. That's what I was in charge of as a staff sergeant. And well, I take that back. I was a sergeant at the time. I was the first squad leader. And, um, you know, my CO put me there to, because I was one of the senior sergeants and, and he knew me. And he knew that I already had the weapons background, so I could employ them correctly. I could employ the, um, the, the grunts correctly and do what I needed to do and do the CQB and do, do the explosives. So any building that needed to, you know, become from a structure to little rubble, <laughs> that was me. I got to do that. And um, I was never worried at all was never afraid. I mean, yeah, did I have some, some pucker factors, but I, but I felt safe with my guys because I knew that I trained them as hard as I could possibly do it at a time that they knew that they were going back into the, into the suck and keeping that, that momentum, my platoon never slept. We never took that many days off. After a mission, we were shooting, we were training, we were doing things to stay sharp because complacency kills. And that was the whole mantra of, you know, beating that drum. I said, okay, if the lieutenant dies, who takes over? I take over, you know, I got promoted while I was there. And, and, you know, what happens if I die? Who's taking over? You know, and you, you know, go through that hierarchy of in training, 
so that there's not a pause and a stop of, oh, what do we do now? Um, and, you know, December rolls around. We get there in maybe, I think, early August and August, September, October, November was getting hit every day of driving over landmines. People were getting hurt. You know, Cat was getting just demolished. I think we've rebuilt Humvees like six or seven times with from the graveyard, from other units that were getting hit. And they left all of their stuff and we would, you know, piecemeal. So we had piecemealed this this Humvee called Grace. That's what we called her because every time you got in it, you didn't know what was going <laughs> to, you ding it and it just stops, right? So Gone in 60 Seconds was right, right there in Iraq. Um, what year is this? This was uh, 2004. Okay. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're doing our operations. We're going to the bridge. You know, we have, we made it fun because in, and I'm never going to forget this Thanksgiving of 04. We're on the bridge in New Ubaidi and Old Ubaidi. It's between this town and this is bridge that's our only uh, bridge that can get back and forth by vehicles. So we had to secure the bridge. And, you know, it's, we, we get out there and it's, couple of days prior to Thanksgiving and I'm like I've been seeing this cow out here in the middle of the field that's chained up not moving anywhere and just eating eating around I was like hey sir can we just you know go find the owner pay him you know and get the cow and then we could have a really good Thanksgiving and so he goes no I said, well, what if I just go over there and sneak over, get it, and then I show up with beef? Is that okay? And he goes, no. And then uh, a gunny, old buddy of mine, he goes, hey. I, um, and he's South African. So he's like, John, I've got, a, I've got an idea. And I was like, oh, what? He goes, I hit a house over here, and it's got turkeys. And I'm like, okay, you're from South Africa. Um <laughs> is it gobble gobble turkeys or is it a chicken? And he goes, it's a gobble gobble. I know a damn turkey. I've lived in America forever. And I was like, okay, fine. So I go around the guys, we grab up some money. We uh, take five guys and an interpreter with me with, you know, food and water and candy for the kids. If he's got kids and stuff. And um, I think uh, doc had a soccer ball and he put the soccer ball uh, in his pack and we go walking around um the base gets hit we're out in the middle of nowhere the choppers are flying around and they're like oh do you have your do you have your glit tape and you do you got your beacon on and i'm like yeah i got my beacon on well they can't see you and i'm like well freaking batteries murphy <laughs> he goes we well, are you're supposed to have backups and i'm like i have my backups hold on you know and so we finally get to the house i see lambs and i was like oh now that would be a great Thanksgiving dinner for the guys. And then I see the turkeys. They, they're Iraqi turkeys. Turkey so they were totally Turkey-ish. <laughs> and uh, then he had chickens and the guy wouldn't negotiate for the lamb. So we got, you know, every, every one of my guys had two chickens in their right hand and a turkey in their left. And I was like, this is going to be great. So we're walking back. I'm the only one with security. Everybody else is holding birds. And um, 
Jason finally comes over and he goes, I, or Gunny Brold. And, and so then he goes, Oh, I can come and pick you up. Hold on. And so he hauls butt in a Humvee by himself in the middle of a war zone. We're getting rocketed all the time. And he comes, picks us up. We throw everybody in and we get there. And, uh, you know, I got a bunch of kids from Chicago. I got a bunch of kids from all over the United States. Right. And we're sitting there and I'm like, well, we're going to have a really good, good dinner. Well, where are we going to build a fire? Well, we have a burn pit, the burn pit situation, right? <laughs> oh, we're idiots. Um, just adds flavor. It just adds <laughs> so much flavor. Uh, and then we have our ammo cans and we're like, oh, let's boil the ammo cans and get the paint off. Don't do that. I mean, this was, this is how, you know, what we were thinking in the moment and then we, you know, we put aiming stakes that we had from the 81s that weren't being used because we only had our 60s and we were roasting the turkeys and everything on the aiming stakes from for, you know, um, and that was just a, the funnest time. Now, did we have the Hershey squirts afterwards? <laughs> yes, we did. But it was a really good meal. So, you know, that's, you know, you have to make things light whenever you're getting hit every single day by mortars and you're getting machine gun fire and you're getting RPG'd um, every day on this, on this, uh, this post. And that one thing of, of just being able to give a Thanksgiving dinner to the guys was like something that's so awesome to, to have. And, you know, my lieutenant calls me every single thanksgiving he's like it's not thanksgiving 04 and i'm like yeah i know but i'm not gonna have the hershey squirts afterwards and he goes yep that's true so i mean we we talk um we stay in touch and contacted which was great but then as we you know kept going i got a mission in um december and they said okay we're moving charlie company from alkheim iraq to ASP Wolf right outside of Hidden Haditha. And uh, the CO goes, Jones, you're you're in charge of this. You're gonna take every piece of gear, 36 vehicle convoy, and we're gonna go to ASP Wolf. And he goes, You're gonna set up the camp, set up the perimeter, set up everything and relieve the um, reserve unit that has been there. I said, Okay, um, not a problem. Spidey sense starts tingling at this point. We're in the mission brief. Um, my affinity for the army uh, at this point was not great. Minus the birds and the choppers. Those guys were amazing. Um, we had our minesweepers uh, there. And we knew we were going down mine road to get to this area. And um, we said, so can we get tanks? with a minesweeper on it? Can we get a track? Can we get something heavy to go over that if it blows up, it's not going to kill everybody in it? Uh, that was denied because we had the minesweepers supposed to go through, you know, two to three hours prior to us leaving. Well, they got another mission of higher priority than us, and they went a different route. And I was like, well, this is great. So that morning of January... Uh, so the minesweepers were an army unit? Yeah. Uh, and then January 3rd of 05, we were leaving early in the morning. Um, didn't have a good feeling that day. Something was off. And I never had that feeling ever before. And 
I was supposed to be in vehicle 14. And I said, I'm going to take Grace, which is vehicle seven up front. Um, so White, you get out, you transfer over. And then I redid the manifest again for the third time. Uh, and I moved him. And then I'm sitting there. I've got the radio that works. I've got the, I'm in Grace. And I know that Grace was, you know, quite made sure, made sure that she was a top working order. And my, my men, they actually put uh, on the two Humvees that we were taking with us uh, because everybody else was getting flown there uh, two days or three days after. And so I'm taking a section, uh, half of a platoon and the security element and all of these people um, there the ASP Wolf and um, my guys were like, we're going to work three days prior to put armor all underneath because you're going down mine road. And I'm like, that's awesome. So whenever I'm going, you know, normal Humvee tires are like this. Now they were like, they were canned <laughs> out. It was heavy. It was super heavy. I think those springs were totally trashed by the time uh, I left the base. Uh, we left the base in 920. Uh, the accident happened. So we hit a double stack anti-tank mine. I'm in a thin skin, so I had the canvas top up top. Um, you know, I had the, you know, good doors on this one because we took it from another Humvee and put it onto these um, instead of the suicide doors, which we called them because it was just a open space with a piece of steel right there. Um, and remember, this is the time that um, Donald Rumsfeld said that Every vehicle that goes outside of the wire is an up-armored Humvee. No, it's not. <laughs> I was like, well, he needs to come here and see what 7th Marines has because we've got crap. Um, and I hit this um, double stack anti-tank mine. Um, we hit a pothole. Told my driver, don't hit another pothole. We hit another pothole. But we have to be in the tracks of the other vehicle in front of us. And that third pothole hit... Um, I, I remember I had my coffee mug on the little bitty piece of the dash right there. And then I, I had my can of Copenhagen and I just took a chew and everything is good. And, you know, all's right in the world. I got my coffee and I already took my PCS, which was my pre-combat shit before <laughs> I left. And, you know, everything's right. And doing my checkpoints, you know, talking to the convoy, getting everything done. Boom. See a flash of light. Wake up behind the Humvee, directly behind the Humvee. Didn't know what happened because you're in that phase where your ears are ringing and everything goes to super slow motion. You know, in the movies, they, you know, where it's, you know, you see that they're dazed and everything and, the, you know, muffled sounds. Had you been blown to that point or moved to that point? Blown at, up. Oh. At that point, I was blown. Um, and I woke up behind the Humvee and it was like, holy smoke. So once I was, had my thoughts, told the guys, stay in. I could hear them. They're like, holy shit. Staff's are got vaporized. Where is he? I don't see the pink mist, but he's vaporized. And I'm like, I'm freaking right here, you assholes. I'm fine. I'm okay. Stay in the truck. They did wick him. Uh, super, you know, he landed in my, my seat. He was my gunner. 
Um, Morrow was good to go. Um, he just got a banged knee. He was okay. And then I was like, I'm there. So my flak jacket's blown open. You know, my glasses are off, the helmet's off. And I'm like, son of a, and, you know, I'm feeling myself. I'm doing everything and check my boys, make sure that they're still priority. there because that's the priority. And then I'm like, Hey, I'm palpitate my, my legs. And I'm like, okay, don't see anything. Don't feel anything. All right, great. Made it, made it through roll over. It was hard to roll over because it was, I was my whole body hurt at that point. And then, then the pain hit and I was like, son of a, I looked down my legs and they're, you know, feet wrong are, directions, feet are in all different directions. And I'm like, this sucks. And I was like, yep, I'm done. And that's whenever it felt like mama Cass was in a steamroller and it was just going back and forth on my legs. Um, doc came over, he ran over another double stack anti-tank mine, you know, his footprint was on the pressure plate. Thank God it didn't go off because that would have been another explosion. My truck ended up sliding, unearthing another double stack anti-tank mine. And it was meant for the dragon wagons, the fuel trucks that were, you hit one, boom, boom, boom. And daisy chain it basically make, make bad days. Right. Um, which was fortunate that we, we hit it, but we ended up seeing another 30 from the reports were of more mines. So they took it really slow. They, you know, they, my guys did exactly what they were supposed to do at that point. They got there. I was, you know, in choppers came down, they picked me up and, you know, my boys knew what to do, right? They, you know, I had a sergeant and, another corporal and you know, they knew that they had to now step up, right? Take that on. And that was the, the day that I, you know, that it was like crazy bad. And I always had my kids, my, my, um, my breast pocket, right. And my ex-wife, um, second marriage ex-wife she was you know we were dating at the time but i had her picture too and i was you know like hey make sure that those come with me wherever i'm going um you know i'm i remember you know laying there in the fists and everything coming and hitting the chopper down and i'm giving a thumbs up saying hey i'm okay to to the guys that are running into the to the medical side of the house and i'm like hey guns i'm good sir i'm okay and then they start to take off the boots and that's where I was pissed. And I was, and I was already cursing at the army. I was cursing at the CO cursing at the Sergeant major cursing at everybody. And they were like, we got to get somebody in here to calm him down because we need to calm him down before we put him under and put him out and try to fix what's going on. By and this point, are you at a, at a hospital? No, I'm in a, I'm in our field hospital. So they're in, just in our time. This is the first initial triage in the fist. And, you know, my CO comes over and he gives me a kiss and I'm like, what? And I don't know if I could say it, but what I said, and he was like, oh, it's just me, Jonesy. Don't worry. And then Burl was there and he calmed me down and, um, I was really mad at that point. I was like, this should not have happened. We have the resources. We should have done it. And I was pissed. And then, I woke up in blood, Iraq, and 
you know, I've got a bedside nurse. She's holding my hand and everything. And, you know, I'm like, wow, you're the cutest thing I've seen in six months. <laughs> so then I pass back out. And the Air Force nurses and flight surgeon and everybody, they come uh, and they said, Sergeant Jones. And I'm like, I'm a freaking staff sergeant. What the hell? And then I'm like, whoa, you guys are way better than my bedside nurse. And my bedside nurse, you know, releases my hand. And <laughs> she's all mad. And then I pass back out. I don't know what I'm doing at this point. <laughs> then I get to launch to a Germany. You have any reference of time span? I have no idea at the time span. All I know is whenever I wake up, I was in Balad. And then I remember key certain things and then I'm passed out. And then I remember waking up in Germany and um, I said that you had, um, you had family here. And I'm like, why? Where's here? They're like, Germany. I'm like, I don't have any family in Germany. And, uh, and then I was thinking to myself, oh, wait a minute. Where's Black Jones? You know, one of my buddies. And I was like, is he black? And they said, no, he's a white colonel. And I'm like, colonel in the Air Force? I don't have a white colonel in the Air Force. And then it dawned on me that my um, brother's wife, her sister, was married to an Air Force colonel who ended up flying me from Balad to Germany. Didn't know uh, until my brother called him and said, hey, John got hit. He's hurt. We don't have anything. We were told that he's lost both legs above the knee, you know, right at the hip, like that he might not live. He might, you know, whatever. And um, it was like, well, I'll find out and come to find out I was on his flight. He told me that, you know, well, you know, the flight nurses said that you were uh, quite uh, happy on your, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I wish I could remember it. I don't remember it. So, you know, get there. He gives me a bottle of beer. He goes, whenever you're ready, you can drink this, you know? And I was like, okay, thanks. Thanks, Rob. And, <laughs> and then I was moved to, um, after they did more surgeries and stabilized me there in Longshore, Germany, and then I moved to Bethesda to the National Naval Medical Center, which is now Walter Reed, whatever, because I joined forces from the Army and the Navy. Um, so I go there on the flight there. I don't remember much except for I remember waking up. It was an excruciating pain and the one of the little nurses came up and then he, you know, un accidentally unhooked something and something slammed on my legs and I was done from there. And um get to um Bethesda and Doc looks over at me and goes, Okay, we've gotta take a leg. And I was like, Okay. Like he goes, it's dying. It's we can't save it. I'm like, all right. And so he made me put an X on my. To this point, no amputation had occurred. No amputation had occurred. They were still there. Which I was thinking, man, broke my legs. I'll be okay. But I wasn't really thinking of that because the pain was just so immense and so crazy that every time you wake up and. You're just in constant, you know, pain. And so then I remember making an X and then passed out. This leg was, you know, my left leg, they were, you know, trying to save it and trying to get blood to it. And I had, you know, huge scars down my legs from the fleshotomies and everything to relieve the pressure from the battlefield. And um, it was just, it was crazy. And then once they amputated it, 
that amputation, the nerves and everything's like, where's the, where, where are things? And it was just, it was the worst time, you know, in my whole life of being in that much excruciating pain. And if I didn't stay on top of those meds for that pain management, that pain was just the worst. And it would take six hours for that pain to come back down to a level to where it was okay and manageable. I mean, if it got to a five, it was going to get bad. If it went to a seven, it's going to be bad for a full night. I'm not sleeping. I went through 40 surgeries in two months. Every 24 hours, I was in a surgery. Um, because of the, the, the growing decay and, and infection? Well, I mean, the desert is full of nasty stuff. It's just full of it. And you have to be cleaned out. And then you have to be, you know, they have to keep that clean tissue, you know, thriving. And then, so gangrene doesn't get in there and, you know, it stops, you know, the flesh eating stuff that you get in Iraq, like uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth had, you know, it's, that's some of the stuff is like really nasty over there. So they, you know, they're cleaning you out. And so I went from just the foot to the little bit past the ankle to, so it kept going higher and higher as they would do a surgery. They were hoping that it would be okay. The blood flow and the blood vessels were done in this leg. This one, I had one good vein that was, that was circulating the, you know, the blood flow and everything and keeping it alive. Um, and then, you know, they did an X fix and they said, well, we can't, we're going to have to do it like what they called a triple arthrodesis where they have to fuse every single bone in my foot and in my ankle to keep, keep there. And I was like, well, great. And what's going in my mind is, can I stay in? Can I, can I continue this or whenever they said that i mean one leg you know uh, i've heard stories of you know veterans you know from world war ii to vietnam that stayed in you know with one leg amputation i'm like all right cool well what what's my what am i going to be able to do with this can i run can i no you're, you're not going to be able to and i was like just take that hope and just crush it and you're like, okay, this is different. What kind of time span are we talking at this point? Two now? months. This is two months. This is from January 3rd to February, you know, something. And I was like, this is, this is not going to be good. And then, you know, then it was, let's just get you better. Let's get you better. Um, you know, I attribute, you know, a lot to my ex-wife who came in and, um, you know, we got married in the hospital. Um, you know, I attribute her of pushing me, right? Getting me to where I needed to go. Um, and that was, that was big, right? I didn't want to have my kids see me at all in the hospital. Like, nope. Like the kids knew I got hurt. The kids knew I, I was, was injured, but I'm okay. Right. I talked to him on the phone. I was so drugged up anyway yeah don't worry 
dad's okay. I'm just a little different now, right? And um, they knew that I lost one leg. So my daughter, she would, you know, put get a Humvee in there with a flag, and then she's got dad with one leg on, right? Still in my camis. Um, so that was rough, and I didn't get to see the kids for, you know, three months until I got back whenever I was in San Antonio, um, Texas, and that crushed me whenever my son didn't even want you know, come over because I had this big, huge external fixator with, you know, rods and look like Frankenstein bad, you know, still hadn't healed from the, from the stitching and everything. So I looked like Frankenstein. I went from 200 pounds to 145 pounds and just decimated. Right. And that was, that was probably, you know, one of the hardest things, but then he figured out that everything was going to be okay. And I'm still dad. So he was like, okay, he did, He just needed his time four. to process. He was it. four, right? How do you process that at four? And my daughter was seven. My daughter had to grow way up. Jade had to grow up immensely at seven years old. Cause she had to watch her brother four years old and, you know, take care of dad and take care, you know, while, everything was going on in the hospital and we're trying to make that family unit cohesiveness. And they never met Amber, my ex-wife. And it was kind of like, man, guess what? Dad came back from war and blown up, <laughs> missed the leg. And I got married. Oh yeah. I lost the leg and gained away. <laughs> so, so it was pretty, it was pretty, you know, hard on them, but then it got easier over time, but I didn't get better over time. My transition was, I was in pain constantly still because after this foot was finally good to go, they said good to go, but it hurt. It was just all the time. Every, there was no, there was no pain. And I was on all these pain medications at the time. And I went off of them all, all at once. Cold Turkey. That sounds very intelligent. I was not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I was, but I was done being foggy in my brain. My brain wasn't working right because of all of these meds. And I ended up, my doctors go, okay, take these two medications. So your heart doesn't explode and you don't die. I said, okay, I'll take these. So I went through 14 days of detox and just miserable. But after that, then it was okay. It was manageable. I could do it. My brain started to work properly again. You know, I could start thinking and then going through my rehab and, um, I go to the, I go to fourth reconnaissance, which is the reserve unit there. And I said, look, I gotta get, I gotta do something. Like I have all of this knowledge. When are you guys going to be going to Iraq? And I said, well, we're leaving in seven months. Great. I'm a staff NCO, put me in the schools, I'll train guys while I'm in my wheelchair. I'll teach them. I can teach. I can still provide something to the Marine Corps and to these guys that are going over there. Um, so I did, and I, you know, did weaponry, did explosives, did everything. And, you know, during that time frame of, you know, going through rehab, I had the Marine Corps, you know, there. I was still in touch with all of my guys, but go back to 29 Palms. I would see them. They would see me. 
even though I wasn't with the unit anymore and I couldn't do the job anymore, they were, I was still there. They would still call me. They would still ask questions. And, um, were you still on active duty at this point? Yep. Why had they not processed you out? I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I was still going through rehab. Okay. 10 months later, I go to the army and I said, Hey, this foot is killing me. I need to get rid of it. It's, it's my quality of life is diminished. They said, well, we're not going to cut it off because it's a healthy limb. So there's nothing healthy in here. I can't move my ankle. I can't run. I can't, you know, take my, can't teach my son how to ride a bicycle. I said, no. They said, my amputation side is my good side. There's no problems with it. And they said, well, you can't. I said, you know what's great about not being in the army? I don't have to listen to you. I said, it says U.S. Marines and on my paycheck, it says Department of the Navy. So guess what? I'm going back to Bethesda. They said, no, you're not. I said, well, my CEO is going to come over and tell you that I don't work for you. I was going to ask you, what prompted the move from Bethesda to Texas? Walter Reed was overpacked and Texas had just started Got it. up and they didn't have uh, Balboa up and running, which I wish they would have taken me to Balboa because I could have been back and forth with my unit. Um, it just wasn't in the cards. So are you working with a prosthetic on your right at mm-hmm. this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, but your left foot or left leg yeah, is just, just basically nothing. Trash. Yeah. It's just trash at this point. So I go back, had some HO, which is, um, you know, where the bone keeps growing and becomes spikes. And I had it on this side. So we did another surgery on both sides of the, uh, and, you know, after that, after I woke up, everything was okay. Amputation didn't hurt as bad on this side, probably because my body had been used to what Dealing that was and, and, you know, was programmed to understand. Where was that initial amputation at? The ankle? Are you talking no, about- it was mid, mid-shin okay. as well. So they wanted to keep me about, you know, Even. equal. Um, and um, from there, it was... It was a hard road thereafter, but got in legs, started wearing them. You know, that's two years of going through, you know, change after change after change after, you know, different legs, new legs, you know, and getting your leg to go from a guppy of what they called that was about this big around to, you know, something that's smaller. Um, I tried to stay in the Marine Corps. I was like, can I stay in? General Jones was like, yeah, you can stay in. You can do whatever you want, not knowing what I could do. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do a desk job. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I want to be out there with, with the guys. I want to be doing it. Tried to do my own McCree or McCrest um, from first Marine division of uh, their standards, right? Where you have to shoot your weapon. You've got to, do your PFT. You got to hike 26 miles with a full rock with full everything. And you know, you have to run your ranges and you have to do those things. I couldn't run any ranges, but I could do the PFT. I could shoot and I could, you know, do the ruck, you know, March 26 miles, when 15 miles, the stitch busted and doc said, you're done. So I was done. So you, this is going to sound like a rhetorical question. Have you done any long training prior to that test? learning how to walk and run again. Other than that, that's, you know, let's throw it on. Let's lift weights. Let's get back to from 145. I think I was 185 
It was a good white, you know, fighting weight. And I was like, all right, I'm, you know, my legs didn't hurt, you know, no problem. Let's do it. You know, I'd push through the pain, you know, to, to deal with it, but it was not insurmountable what you do. And, um, then, you know, mile 15 at 26, I took off the leg and it was bleeding and doc goes, you're done. done. I was like, give me some super glue, (laughs) you know, (laughs) uh, it just didn't work out. So, um, I knew at that point that I wasn't going to be able to stay in the service and be an asset. I would be a liability at that point. So, you know, it turned in my do not promote turned in all of my, my paperwork. Um, my sergeant major buddy of mine goes, get promoted. I said, well, I'm not going to take somebody else's boat space, you know, for their promotion. If I'm just going to get out in five months. And he goes, take the promotion. Should have listened to him. That would have been actually 400 bucks a month, you know. <laughs> um, hindsight, 2020. Hindsight, 2020, right? Um, so, you know, I retired in 2007. So, you know, it took me full two years. I didn't want to walk with a limp, didn't want to walk. So whenever I was ready, that's whenever I retired. Um, went out silent. You made the comment that, you knew your time was up because you were going to be more of a liability than an asset. Mm-hmm. Was it literally that one instance with the mm-hmm. stitch that tore or looking back in hindsight, were you kind of realizing it and just trying to fight it off? Probably. It was probably a little bit of both, but um, the spirit was still there that still wanted to do it. And that's what I couldn't break. That's what, for 10 years, just killed me. Like, why can't I do this? If I would have, in a, you know, go back in my head, if I would have waited another eight months, I would have been fine. I would, you know, because I was skiing, I was running, I was doing everything that I could do. And I was teaching and I was doing, you know, you know trying to maintain that mentality in my head. Um, but couldn't contain the impatience of wanting to be back to. Yeah. It took me 10 years to say, you know, I can still do this. I could still do this. I could still do this. If I could do this, this would be, you know, can I go back? Can I, you know, and that's my head every single day was, was why can't I? Why can't you do it? Why can't, why didn't you do this differently? Why did you fight the C, you know, why did you fight the CO to take the two Humvees versus taking the seven ton? Why did you do that? Why, why, you know, in in your head, you're going through everything constantly takes a toll, takes a mental toll, takes that anger, pit it in your stomach and just brings it out. And then you become angry at your, your ex, you could become, you know, if you're your spouse, your kids, you know, the smallest things set you off because you're still internally dealing with not making the choice fully yourself. Somebody else really made that choice for you that you couldn't do it. Yeah, cognitively, did I say, oh, well, I can't do it? But no, it was the situation that told me I couldn't do this anymore. The situation of losing both limbs below the knee 
was that situation. So where did I go after that? My transition sucked. I was, I was like, let me go to school. I got to get a college education to get a job. I've got to do these things. I was living in San Antonio, bought a house, you know, excited to go back to, to, to start school. Wasn't ready for school. Wasn't ready for that, you know, 18 year olds that are being disrespectful to the professor by, you know, being on their phone or being on their computers and, you know, falling asleep in class to, you know, it, it just irritated me to no end. And I couldn't, couldn't stand it. The disrespect that they were giving to a professor that they're paying for. And I'm like, you're paying for this education. Wake up, you know, but I was in their shoes. It would have been doing the exact same thing. But right. since I was older and it, you know, I went through a couple of years of school and I was like, this is not for me. Um, it's just, it's just not. And then trying to find a job. And um, I did a film with James Gandolfini and while I was still in the hospital in 2006 and it came out, I think in 2007 was Live Day Memories Home from Iraq. And they took a photo. Real quick before you go into that, just taking you back to the day of the incident, you were the only one significantly injured mm-hmm. and nobody died. No. Nobody died. Which which is which is crazy. Out of all of the major engagements that we had in Charlie Company, we didn't lose one person to death. To you know, nobody died. In the company, in the battalion, we lost a lot of people. But my company, we lost a pair of MVGs, an eye, and a pair of legs. That's it. And that's, that's something that most combat units in full combat for time couldn't say. But Suicide Charlie, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, during that time frame, we didn't lose a soul. We lost some parts, but that's about it. And, you know, I talked to my CO about that. The Marine Corps is still bitching about the NVGs that you lost. Probably. <laughs> I don't give a shit. Maybe a rifle or two, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we, we both said this is crazy that all of this, all of the crazy stuff that we did in combat, we didn't lose anybody. He goes, I know. He goes, the rest of my deployments weren't like that because I, you got to attribute it to the training, the leadership, everything that we had, the non-complacency. That's what he attributes it to. And I was like, well, I attribute to leadership because we didn't want to let you down. We didn't want to let anybody down. And we, you know, stuck together in a tight unit. We knew what we were doing, but, um, so I cut you off back to your movie star career. Yeah. Right. How'd, how'd that come about? I was at a, um, I was at a gala for Disabled Sports USA. And, you know, I spoke there and, you know, as being an injured service member that, you know, received some services from them to get, you know, sports and therapy. How do you get sports into therapy of, it's not just physical, it's mostly mental you know, therapy at that point. And it really brought me out of the funk of, I can't do things. And I went snow skiing while I was in the hospital and 
was like, I can do this and I could be in a, in a set ski and I could haul butt down the mountain and get that adrenaline rush because I wanted that rush so bad. Um, and I was speaking at a, an event. I was in my uniform. I was still in the service and HBO, John Alpert comes over and he goes, I want to interview you. If, is that okay? And I told the story of, you know, my guys and, and you know, what happened. And they said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know if we want you to be in this documentary. I said, okay. Um, nothing happened for a month, two. And then finally HBO calls and said, we would like you and your family to come to New York to film with James Gandolfini. I was like, oh, James Gandolfini. Awesome. <laughs> because we watched him every Thursday. And, you know, the CO would make, you know, um, you know, little, little things were going to the mattresses. Let's, you know, <laughs> and the, you know, and then it was like, oh yeah. You know, so we had that, you know, I was like, oh, this is pretty awesome. So we end up, I meet, I met him and we did our, our film where James is sitting there. I'm sitting here telling the story of, you know, what happened, you know, what it's like coming home and, then they were started taking pictures and uh, Timothy Greenfield Sanders was the photographer and he, he was taking pictures and um, they wanted me to roll up my pants. And I was like, all right, well, I'm in my uniform and I'm rolling up my pants. Did I get authorization from the Marine Corps to do this? <laughs> but I think it served the Marine Corps. Well, uh, I think it was, I think it was perfectly fine. So I'm sitting there and I got my pants rolled up and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at there and then, you know, it's a film production, right? So you never know. And then it's kind of like out. this. It's kind of <laughs> like this. And then they said, "Oh, we want to show you the the picture of what we're gonna, how we're gonna market this." And it's me sitting in the in the chair, dress blues. This is Live Day Memories, home from Iraq, and it's and it's there. And I was like, "This is crazy." And then as soon as that got publicized, everything started to roll. 2007, 2008. Um, my first time of um, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff calls me. Thought it was a joke. Thought it was, <laughs> yeah, okay, right. I'm a nobody. See ya. Hang up. Um, General Pace calls back. He says, I want you to... He just got out of being chairman of Joint Chiefs, and he goes, I'm doing a program to Wall Street warfighters, getting veterans, disabled veterans, to get jobs on Wall Street. Would you want to do this? This is, I guarantee you a job. And I said, sir, you can't guarantee anything. I can't even guarantee you that I'll pass this test of the Series 7 or anything. And he goes, hey, don't worry. It's six months. You take your time but we want you at the first class. I said, okay, well, but then they also wanted to utilize the photo. Right. And I get it. Um, so I went through that, uh, the wounded warrior project wanted to use the photo and then everybody wanted to use this photo, you know, because it was the culmination of, you know, it look, look at this, you know, and the film and everything. So it kind of all went into a whirlwind of different things. So I, got my brokerage, you know, went through that. Then I became, this is where my nonprofit career started. And 
I was the executive director. So I was in charge of getting guys jobs, pulling them in, finding them from all across the United States, you know, getting them into this program to receive training, to become, you know, get a stable job. And at that time, there was 19% unemployment rate for veterans coming out of Iraq. And it was, you know, this was kind of like the tidal wave that came. Stayed there uh, for a couple of years, left, uh, went to, my head was still wanting to do stuff. So I went in to train cops, CQB, SWAT, you know, explosives, pistol shooting, long rifle, you know, all, all the way through and did that for a couple of years. And then there's something that, you know, kept pulling me back into the veteran space. Um, and then I worked for the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation because they found me because they found the photo. They knew the photo. They were like, oh, we, you have kids. We want to provide your kids with scholarships. And I'm like, why? This is because we can. We're the Marine Corps. We're taking care of our own. And I said, okay. Um, great. My kids are young. They're not even in school yet. They're not even ready for college. I said, it's guaranteed $40,000 per kid. And I was like, you've got the kind of money to do that? And they said, yeah, we have the money to do that. Brought me to Chicago. And then I ended up working for them. Um, because I was like, this is something I can get behind. That the Marine Corps is taking care of its own. Because the Marine Corps does take care of its own. Um, and I was like, With each right. of these iterations, was it you going, hey, you got a place for me to, to do work here? Or, or was it just offered to you? Offered. Um. It was offered. So it was kind of, and I, I think it's just because of that film and the publicity that it got. And, you know, I would speak to 500 people and people would come up. Oh, I want to, I want you to work for me. I want you to do this. And I was like, yeah, all right. I don't, you know, you, you trust people just as about as far as you can throw them. Right. That's what my grandpa always said. Because, so that means you don't trust him very much. Right. Right. Whenever you first meet him. And, you know, kept going through this. So I worked for the scholarship foundation for a while and I knew I was ready for a change and I knew I'd, I'd, um, you know, moved on. And I think it's that mentality of the Marine Corps that you need a job every three years because you change. Um, but you stay in the same field or something of, of that nature. And so that's where I was looking at it and um my buddy was in two seven he was a corpsman he started his nonprofit um workshops for warriors down in san diego um and i was like what do you need he goes i need somebody who raised money ah, that's what i do yay let's talk and then came down to san diego <laughs> love san diego love san diego my whole time um you know being in california and i was like I'm moving here. Got divorced from my my second wife and had two more kids, you know, which is funny is my um fifteen year old now, he was born without a right forefoot. So what better parent to have? Somebody who doesn't have legs and now he doesn't have a foot. Right. So, you know, I mean it it all just kinda seemed to go, but my head was still not in it right? Still not there. 
while I was working before I transitioned to California, I checked myself into the VA hospital. I was going through a divorce and my head wasn't right. It, it was just, and it's that 10 year mark that really threw me for a loop and I needed to figure it out. Yeah, I'd been doing all this stuff for vets and everything, but I hadn't been taking care of myself. And going there, going to the VA, seeing how the VA was was dealing with things at the time. So no talking to any professional counselor type person up to that point? I tried, but they were all quacks because, I mean, you, you didn't know where I came from. Right. You weren't in the service. You didn't, you know do the things that we did. How can I talk to you? And you understand whenever you say, Oh, I totally understand. You don't understand. You, you, you absolutely don't understand where our mindset comes from, where we look at death in a different way. We look at the, that camaraderie that we had and we looked at our death, the deaths that we had, we, some people say that you are, you're just, you're not sensitive to, to it. Well, yeah, you are, but you have to deal with it because there's something that has to go on the next day. Like, yeah, your friend died. <sighs> Shit. It was his time. It was his, his number was up. Right. And then, but you have to keep going and then you joke about things And you know, I mean, in the hospital, you joke about things. You, you have the burn victims come up and oh, what's up, Krispy Kreme. And they're like, Hey, hey. <laughs> Yeah, what's up? No legs. And then, you know, but we have our own sense of how to deal with things through humor and through razzing each other to get everybody up. And I'm like, hey, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's one thing that you, you deal with, with your friends better than you deal with the family unit and everybody else after. Because it's just a different world that nobody really understands unless you've been there, unless you've done some of those things. And that's why, you know, military members get along well with cops. They get along well with firefighters. They get along well with paramedics. Why? Because you guys see the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst of people and accidents and dealings than 90 of the whole population. They don't know. They're living in their stupid bubble of Kim Kardashian. What is she wearing? And oh, Bruce Jenner now became a woman. And now what, you know, but they don't get the real world. And it's, and it's um, one of those things that you keep your friends and your family that you served with because they're family. You keep them tight and you look after each other, right? And so maybe that's why I went into the veteran space because I wanted to keep care of my family because it doesn't matter if you served in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, you know, or the Marines, you're, that's the family because you relied on the Air Force guy that would drop the bomb. You relied on the boat to get you there to take care of you. You relied on the army, you know, to do their things as well. I mean, it's just like, that's what you, you know, that's your family. That's your, that's your cohesive unit. 
So putting me into the veteran nonprofit space was, that was the calling, I guess you could say. And going through all of those different um, jobs led me up to this one that I'm at now. Because from getting them jobs on Wall Street, not a lot of people could do that. Get I'm in. actually surprised at the number of, especially like from the special operations community that end up in the financial world and, and Wall Street. You know why? Because if you think about it, if you're, you're looking at numbers and you're looking at data all day long, right? They're looking at numbers and data all day long whenever they're, you know, calculating how many rounds they have and how many, you know, because that's their training, right? How many rounds fit in the 30 round magazine clip and how many times did I shoot and then transition, right? from your weapon to a new, from, you know, that empty magazine or almost empty magazine to a full magazine, right? And it's training, right? And then whenever you go into Wall Street, it's like, hmm, a grunt on the ground. Once he calls in for air support, that pilot's in charge of that plane up until a certain point. That grunt or the special operations unit guy He's in charge of a, you know, $100 million plane with a, another $500,000 bomb that he's got to hit a target over here four miles away that he can't see, but he has to be precise. And he owns that bird until that bird drops its ordinance and then flies away. Mission complete. So you're in charge of that. So if you can drop a bomb on the size of a cookie four miles away, why can't you do that in the financial world? That's where I, that's where I would always tell the financial guys. I'm like, you might be from Yale, Harvard, you know, Stanford, you know, the Ivy leagues, Oxford, but what did you do? You studied a book. We actually had millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment that we were in charge of millions and millions of dollars worth of training of all of our men, millions and millions of dollars of every single asset that the grunt owns at that point in time, you are holding $500 million from some, some person that says, Oh, I'm going to take care of you and your money because one, that's my livelihood. But two, I make sure I want to make sure that you're good. So what, what ends up happening, they do their trades, a split second decision, good or bad or indifferent. They're making the decision and they're helping their clients. So it's the exact same thing from Wall Street to, you know, you're managing money. Right. So it, it kind of makes sense. Right. That's um, digressed. Where, where, where You were talking about your current. Yeah. So my current non-profit. position. So my whole time frame coming up of jobs, education, jobs again suicide, you know, working on the suicide piece was everything was all constant on one thing. And that was housing. Housing was the number one issue. Whenever I was in my previous position, um, where we were looking at the suicide issue with veterans and why is it, it's not 22 a day because the VA doesn't count for the national guard. They don't count for the reserves. They don't count for those people because they're not in the VA system. Hmm. Right. The states aren't counting it correctly either. So that number is not just 22 a day. 
It's more than 22 a day. But most of the time, the number one big issue is housing. Housing security. Finding a house. Renting the house or the apartment. And with 40,000 veterans that are homeless, big problem with that was whenever they transitioned, whenever they got out, they weren't, they weren't as fortunate, right, to go onto a movie set to tell your story, to do that. They, weren't, they didn't have that. They went home where they didn't have a friend anymore. They went back home. Their family unit didn't understand them. They get a job. They get in trouble. They, they're having issues. So that transition for them, because the military will train you for three, four, five, six, seven, eight months for your job on how to do your job. But whenever you get out, seven days. Peace out. See you later. Have a good one. Because they're in the job of warfare, not transition. So with VBC Giving Foundation, I found this through a buddy of mine who was a Naval Academy grad that played for football for the Navy, right? So I'm going to bang on him for a minute here <laughs> because then he went to the Air Force after oh. the Naval Academy. So, which I always give him, give him uh, a lot of guff on that because, you know, oh, really? Couldn't hack it in, the, you know, in the Navy and the Marine Corps. You had to go to the Air Force. Uh, but he would, you know, criminal investigation and stuff like that. That's what he wanted to do. And, you know, the Navy and the Marine Corps didn't have that. So he went to the Air Force, which is perfectly fine. Um, but I still have to give him guff on it. Um, he called me up, you know, um, and he said, hey, would you like to, um, I need an executive director. We're looking for one. We're housing veterans in Philadelphia. We're building buildings to house veterans. I was like, okay, what do you, give me more information. And, you know, after he gave me the information, he goes, well, do you want to do this or not? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll throw my hat in the ring, see what happens. Um, And I got the job on January 3rd, 2023. Pretty big date right? January 3rd, 2005, my career ended in the Marine Corps. January 3rd of 2023, my new career of housing veterans and other demographics that definitely need housing started right now, this year. That was a kind of a eye-opener for me personally, because I can house veterans, house children aging out of foster care, house the abuse survivors, and house seniors. Hmm. This is definitely worth it for me. Came on board, and I'm not a builder. I have no idea. This you point. blew up buildings. <laughs> I blew up buildings. I didn't put them. I didn't know what modular construction was. I did, you know, I thought modular construction was your trailer house, <laughs> you know, that, you know, I lived in when I was in Oklahoma, you know, I was like modular, but modular in a high rise. Hmm. 
it was very unique and didn't really understand it at the beginning. And then, then as I've been going through and seeing how the process and seeing how much easier it is and how much faster it is and how much safer it is. And not only from structurally, but from the allergies to the molds, to the dusts, to everything that is from a modular perspective, this is the future of building. Stick builds take forever. Modular is 50% faster. We're greener. We're more um, sustainable. So I really got to that and I was like, this is, this is pretty unique. It's pretty cool. So going through and I said, well, the one demographic that we need to support the first and the most is veterans, right? Because there's 1% of us that serve a country and then as we go, but we need to provide wraparound services at the back of this, not just housing them. Housing them is just one thing, but let's get them to a, a point where they can be self-sustaining and, and go from homeless to having a house to now being financially secure to now owning your own home. And our first building is in Philadelphia. Uh, it's our flagship. We opened May of 2023. We had a line around the, the block the day that we opened for people, for veterans to apply for housing, which is really, 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 that shows you the need in America of where those veterans are what they need and it really hit me that day that marines don't fail i'm not going to fail this mission's not going to fail i'm going to house as many vets as i possibly can and the only way i can do that is it takes a village to build a village we're the ones that are providing the housing for veterans. You've got a lot of big organizations across the United States. They do programs. I'm not the program guy. We do one thing really well. We build this model of this house of this housing complex that can be replicated across the United States with very with ease. And then we provide the services by working with other nonprofit organizations to provide those key intricate services, which is VA benefits, getting your veteran the ability to, once they got out, they didn't know what they were doing with the VA. VA gives you a piece of paper and says, fill this out. And then you go through 15 different appointments and they say, oh, well, you're 30% disabled, but they've got burn pit issues. Or burn pit. <laughs> <laughs> Best Thanksgiving ever. They got the burn pits. They've got the PTS. They've got all these other military sexual trauma is on the rise. They've got all of these different things that they didn't have prior to joining the service. And then what's the VA doing? Well, they're not providing the best. So we need to get their veterans benefits bumped up. We have a lot of Vietnam veterans that are living in our building. Agent Orange, that's a thing. It's been a thing for years. We've all known about it. Well, some of them are not at 100%. They should be at 
So getting them their percentage rating higher, getting their VA educational benefits that they rate, you know, for the younger generation, because you have, you know, 10 years after you get out to utilize it. Well, if they haven't utilized it and you have to go through the system, most people don't know how to go through that system. Getting them the financial education that they need. That's huge. Getting them the partnering with companies that want to hire veterans, getting them there, taking their experience and delivering that and placing that inside of their companies, you know, getting the resume writing, getting their resumes up. You know, all of these things are key for their mental health. Because the big thing, if you take a chair, you got a job, got a house, got food, you got your family, right? Well, if you're in a setting in a chair and, oh, lost your job, they have three legs. You can rebalance and set on three legs. Then you lose your house. I take away another leg. Now you're on a fence. Then your spouse goes away. Then the food goes away. Then you have nothing. Then you fall off the chair. Well, if we can alleviate the housing and making it affordable where you're not house poor, that you can afford to live and to feed your, your family, feed yourself, then your mental health, it's a situational issue with suicide. And what's great about our model of veterans living next to veterans is that veterans can definitely tell whenever you're having an off day. They could be like, brother, sister, what's going on? How can I, what, what, what's up? They're self-communicating. They're self-therapy there, which is amazing because you want that you know, cohesiveness that you missed whenever you transitioned out of the Marine Corps or the military. Now there's a place to where veterans can go live next to each other. Yes, it's not the barracks because we're adults and we want our own space. The bathrooms have doors. The bathrooms have doors, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the stalls have, 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 have doors. But it's that, it's that working together to take care of each other because it's what we do. And the, the ancillary services that you talked about, resume writing and, and mm-hmm. job placement, are you bringing those services to them or taking them to those nope. services? We bring them there because our building, we have a community room. So we're looking at nonprofits that are actually doing the work that have the track record of partnering with them to bring them in to provide those services to the veterans. That's key because you have to have those VSOs or NGOs to be able to pull in to do. Because like I said, we build a building really well. We know how to stabilize the building. We know how to build more. We know how to take this replication of this building in Philadelphia and transplant it all across the United States. We're in Denver. We're coming to Denver because Denver has a huge problem with housing. It's expensive, but everybody wants to live here. Chicago, we're building one for female veterans because they're the most demographic that is being the the most underserved in the United States, female veterans, because what do you think of whenever you see a veteran, right? You think, ah, male, meat eater, you know, trigger puller. 
grunt, right? No, they don't think of the female, the fighter pilot, the mechanic, you know, everything that encompasses what a female do in the military. And they're in the infantry now. So I think that's a big thing to keep pushing also in that. Oh, oh, it, as it's been said by somebody else, I'm not going to take credit for it, but she was a guest on the podcast, Jess, not comparing veteran status. You no. are a veteran. You don't have to be a grunt trigger puller. You could have been a supply person. Mm-hmm. You're a veteran, mm-hmm. most importantly. Yeah, and you and, serve and the country. Don't, don't feel less mm-hmm. because you weren't this. But on the flip side, this isn't entitled more because they did this. Right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, what does everybody do in the service? Your, your, your whole jobs is one team, one fight, right? You support, yeah, everybody in the service, they support the infantry. They support the trigger pullers, right? Because, yeah, those are guys on the ground, but we couldn't do our job without the supply without the motor T, without anybody else, we're all one big family. And yeah, she was exactly correct. You don't, a veteran is a veteran. There's not levels of a veteran. You're one thing. You're 100% better than 98% of the United States of the population. Because why? Because you did something bigger than yourself. You supported and did something bigger for than just America. Like you did things across. I mean, how many how many countries come to us with need, that need help? Everybody in the whole world looks to America and their military force and their military might to do something. But what Americans need to realize is that that one percent need the most help. Because they gave up everything. They didn't go to college to party. They went overseas to a war halfway around the world. But guess what? Would they do it again? Yeah, they would. Why? Because we love our country. We love what we're doing. Well, and to bring it back to the male side of it also, Mm -hmm. you've got a bunch of young men, 18 years old, 19 years old, no life experience, not done growing up yet. And they go spend four, eight years in an environment that they learn to thrive in. But, and I'm not saying this disparagingly, they come out and they don't know how to operate in the real world because they're used to that military mentality. And uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said they'll spend eight months training you, but when it's time to exit, they'll give you seven days. How about giving them a little bit more on the back end right. and maybe make them a little bit more prepared to, to walk, walk out that door. Right. Well, and you know, and it's not just males, it's females True. too. Right. I mean, it's, it's that, it's that whole piece where it's, it's, it's everybody, right? Everybody gets trained the same. Everybody gets pushed out the same. Right. And, yeah, the military is trying their hardest with their their getting out side of the house where they'll, you know, do these skills bridge programs and things of that nature. But you better know what you want to do. 
<laughs> it doesn't do you any good to sit through a class if right. you don't know what the hell you want to go do. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's where, that's the problem is, do you know where a lot of the unemployment goes? So whenever you get out of service, you can go on unemployment. Your time's over, right? Your contract's ended. You can get on unemployment. Guess who pays for that unemployment? Them. Their Society. unit. Their unit. That let them go. Mm. They pay for that. So if you look at how much money that the federal government and the military is paying on unemployment, hmm, here's an idea. Take all of that money that you're doing for the unemployment, give them the last six to seven months of their time frame of getting out, create special units. I mean, they're bracking, you know, military installations. We'll get an old military installation, put them there, and that's the transition unit. But don't have it ran by somebody who is a colonel and a general and every that hasn't transitioned. Put that into, all right, great. We're going to hire industry professionals in every single asset of getting out, and we're going to put them through courses of how to become a civilian again. I don't know how many guys in my previous time frame that didn't know, okay, what color socks? Does the belt need to match the shoes? Because I used to have a, you know, my martial arts belt with my, (laughs) you know, tan boots that I had to wear. And I knew what I had to wear for PT. I knew what I had to wear for this, but I don't know what I have to wear for a job interview. I don't know how to sell myself. I don't know how to network myself. I don't know how to talk about what I did in civilian lingo to the hiring manager. The hiring manager doesn't know how to understand me. So if the military really wanted to say, here's a full taking care of our people. And by the way, go through the VA system and try to figure out and get your appointments eight months ahead of time. And then, oh, you can't get your VA appointment because they canceled it. Now it's another seven months. So. And you know, the easiest way to fix the VA system, have everybody in Congress get on the VA system. <laughs> Do you think the VA system would be better at that point? Yeah. Whenever, you, whenever Nancy Pelosi has to wait seven months for a medical appointment, medical appointment, she'll be like, um, no, I'm used to this being in the congressional, you know, medical system. Let the president go and get all of his stuff from the VA. Do you think that <laughs> would, that'll definitely change? That's how you change things. You have to get the top, the top of the top, changing things. What are we doing? We're providing the housing, but we're showing the federal government how to do it more efficiently and more effectively. Because it didn't take us long to build our building. It was done within a year. We had supply chain issues like everybody else in the United States. So we had to wait an additional year, almost a year, to open up because of supply chain issues of electrical meter main. But if we didn't have that, we would have already been on our, probably our second or third building at this point. But what's good about the nonprofit world is 
or what, what's good about us is we're, we're ensuring that we're not moving faster than what we need to, to stabilize this building in Philadelphia is providing, I mean, it's 47 units. It's 37,000 square feet. It is the most beautiful building that I've really been in that my board did prior to. And we're not the, we're the safety net prior to the people becoming homeless. We're not the housing first model. We're the model of let's get to them before they become housing insecure. Let's get to them. Let's get ahead of the problem and house them before it gets to the point of homelessness. Before it gets to the point of them losing their homes. But what do we, we've got one building. We need 50 buildings. The only way we can do that is by everybody donating something. $5 goes a long way because 90% of every single dollar that we have goes right straight into the buildings. That's 90 cents on the dollar. That's what we need. We need the individuals to give funding so that we can actually have a tangible, and guess what? You get to see where your $5 went in that building. You can see that that $5 put in light bulbs. You can see that that $5 put the floor in. You can see that all the way through. So if we got a million people given 5 to 10 to $25, we can start another building. And it keeps going. But you can see where that's going. In a nonprofit world, it's the tangibles that are there, right? That you can see where it goes. I can give money to other nonprofit organizations. I don't know where it goes. But I can see with us, I know exactly where it goes because it goes to the building. It's housing them. It's buying the windows, buying the drapes, buying, buying everything. The more money we get, we can outfit the full apartment with furniture. But it takes funding, right? Now, will, will every veteran need the furniture? No. But would it be nice to be like, hey, it's fully furnished, brand new stuff. You have a brand new start. You have the stepping stone to become even more successful. You're already a successful person. You've already served your country. You've already done everything for them. You've had hard times. You've fallen on hard times. You had your PTS flare up at you and that dragon came in and bit you in the face. And it's just keep gnawing at you. It's going into your head. But guess what? You overcame that. And now here's a beautiful, safe, dignified home that you can live in, thrive, be with your brothers and sisters. And then you can move out. If you want, or you can age in place. You can stay here forever if you want. It doesn't matter. But this is what it is, and it's affordable. But it looks like market rate housing, or better than market rate housing. Most important to kind of wrap this up. How are you, how are you through all this? You mentioned finally going to the VA and starting talking to somebody about the you know Rubik's cube between your ears. How are you doing today? You know what? I'm I'm better than I have been in a long time. So 
going out there and, you know, I think about, you know, the big bullet every day because I have to put these on. Is today the day that I'm going to just say I'm done? Or am I going to throw the legs on, walk out the door, and tackle the world? Well, there's a few things that get me to that point of putting the legs on, getting out of bed, going out there and tackling the world. My kids. I'm not going to leave them because remember, with suicide doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody. Everybody you touch, it affects. It affects your family. It affects your friends. It affects your brothers. It affects your sisters. It affects everybody. So it's just not you. You're not dealing with it, but you have other people that are dealing with some of the same things that you're dealing with. But if you don't talk about what you're doing and what you're feeling and what you're doing, that dragon's going to keep eating away at you all the way through. And, you know, it's funny. I got my dragon on my arm because it's a constant reminder that he's always there, but he's not going to win. Don't let him win. Put the legs on. Get going. If the legs don't work that day, get the wheelchair. Do something. Right? For me, this job of housing my brothers and sisters and housing other people that need housing, that gets me going. Like, I get up every morning jazzed for my job. And this is... One, because of everything that I've done prior to is a culmination of this one, that if I can house them, I get them that good job. But you can't get a job unless you have a house. can't get a job unless you have a address. Hmm. Okay? can't get educational benefits. can't go to school. can't, do, can't better yourself if you don't have a place to study. If you don't, oh, if you don't have a place to study, don't have a place to cook, don't have a place to eat. That's a problem. So let's fix the problem of everything else behind by housing our veterans. That's the key. Housing. Housing them. Get them to that point to where they can go stepping stones, right? But it's not a handout. There's a hand up. That's what we do. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you for sharing your story and I wish you the continued success. Perfect. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcast and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.